Good morning. Thank you, Dr. Levine. Good morning. Welcome to Pediatric Grand Rounds, December 19th, 2018. We will reconvene January 9th of 2019, so um, not next week. Is um, you can enjoy the Christmas holiday or not the week after, and you can enjoy the New Year's holiday, and then uh, January 9th we will be back. So um, wish you all happy holidays. We are going to be interactive today, so as you are putting your codes in for your CME credit, and you text the TQJV, the, the code for our CME credit. After you do that, text all one word, Steve Ray's 009, to the number 22333. So the number 22333 is the address you're sending it to, and the message is Steve Ray's 009. Dr. Ray's is going to engage us interactively in a poll everywhere poll in, in the next little bit. So. As I'm introducing him, I'll leave those up. Um, the address is 22333, and you'll the message right into the message line is Steve Ray 009, and it'll open up a poll everywhere for you to, to be able to, to sign into. So we are pleased to have Dr. Ray's here in the Upper Valley and, and at uh, the podium for Grand Rounds today. Uh, he is a, a graduate of Indiana State University for undergrad and a doctor of dental surgery at the University of Michigan, all over the Big Ten. Uh, general practice residency for dentistry in Louisville at the VA Medical Center, followed by a Master's of Science in Pediatric Dentistry back at the University of Michigan, and a teaching certificate uh, in dental education at the University of the Pacific. He's had actually numerous leadership roles in education as well as in the public health service. Uh, has spent had spent 21 years in Ac in Alaska uh, at the Indian Health Service Lutheran Medical Center Alaska area Native Medical Center in Anchorage as the director of the Indi the IHS Dental Residency. He was recognized for his service, commissioned with an achievement medal for sustained quality performance in his duties at the Alaska Native Medical Center in the field of pediatric dentistry and a public health service citation for outstanding efforts in implementation and evaluation of periodontal disease prevention uh, for adults in the Kodiak Area Native Association. Uh, he also was a Dental Director Excellence Leadership Award for his accreditation of the IHS Pediatric Dental Residency Program through the Lutheran Medical Center. And so it comes with a really eclectic and interesting uh, background to the Upper Valley where he has um, essentially, not completely inherited, but opened up a pediatric dentistry office and has taken over from someone many of us knew for 30-something years, Dr. Stephen Bachner. So um, I'll get his slides up, and without further ado, let Dr. Reyes take this podium. Thanks. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate the honor of being able to uh, present uh, to people of uh, the stature that are in this room. And, and I have to say, uh, of all the lectures and everything I've given, um, 
this was uh, rather uh, uh, intimidating. And so uh, I chatted with a lot of residents and some anesthesia staff, and I said, what do you think people want to hear about? And the residents had, uh, they weren't shy about giving me requests of things that they'd really like to hear or, or maybe not hear. And so a few things that they recommended for me was one, make it interactive with the text poll, which I hadn't done. So bear with me as we get through that. Uh, the other was they, um, which took me a bit by surprise because I was offering topics like uh, revitalization and transplant, auto-transplantation of teeth and things. And one resident kind of went, no, maybe how about how we get a cavity and how we prevent them? And I said, <laughs> okay, all right, I'll, I'll go back to uh, oral health. And so I, I added some of that information and then in addition included um, some information that they wanted to see uh, on basic trauma. Uh, apparently, that's something that, that tends to show uh, frequently. And then the third most requested was we love to see pictures. So cool pictures and cool cases would be great. So I kind of threw in this collage. Uh, eclectic was a word that came up. I guess that might describe the presentation overall. So um, and my background is um, in Alaska where I was in U.S. Public Health Service for, for the the duration of the career and actually retired from that service. Um, and so if you'll indulge me, I'll throw in a few Alaska photos that I took while I was up there. Um, this being one of them, if you haven't seen this, I highly recommend everybody sort of get the opportunity if it presents. It's really a phenomenal thing to watch when you see these kind of colors, but not only the colors, but them moving and flowing in curtains. It's really incredible. So back to the basics, the actual caries process. Um, I found, at least with parents, that, that it often isn't as well understood as I kind of wish that it was. Um, parents often are, are receiving the information that if they just brush their teeth, then they don't, worry, they don't have to worry about their child getting caries. And, and that's certainly one part of the formula, but it's a much more complex um, dynamic process than just that. Um, yeah, obvious, you have to have three things to cause a cavity. You have to have a tooth, you have to have the oral flora that supports caries, and that explains why you'll have some parents say, oh, this kid, he drinks Mountain Dew all the time and he's never had a cavity, and my other one just looks at crackers and gets cavities. One may not have gotten exposed to the oral flora called strep mutans that is responsible for the breakdown of carbohydrates, creation of acid that leads to the caries process. The other child, um, somewhere generally, and as we're finding out, it's generally the exposures between zero and 36 months of age, was exposed to the oral bacteria, strep mutans, that causes cavities. We have found that that's very tenacious in the flora. So um, if you think about it in terms of looking at a tongue under a microscope, there's 100,000 Grand Canyons for the bacteria to hide in. It's not in the serum, so systemic antibiotics don't reach them. Topical antibiotics, such as a mouth rinse, like chlorhexidine, will drop the pathologic um, oral flora to a certain extent. But generally what we find is it always comes back to baseline. So it's, it's really similar to gut flora in that, in that respect. Then the final thing that you have to have, which I would argue in our current state uh, is the most important, and that's the substrate. 
Um, one of the statements that I've made that, that usually takes everyone by surprise is that you could go the rest of your life without brushing your teeth and not get a cavity, which is so uh, contradictory to all the information we receive our entire lives. I'm going to show you some extreme examples of that here um, as the morning passes along. But the big thing is, if you'd never brushed your teeth and you never had substrate that would cause caries, you wouldn't get a cavity. So what goes in the mouth, dietarily speaking, is really paramount. Um, although decay is largely preventable, it still remains to be the most chronic <laughs> disease of children aged 5 to 17. Uh, it's five times more common than <coughs> asthma. Um, Dr. Chapman is... Um, he has tremendous knowledge on stats and data, and so I, I don't know if this is the same ones that you've run across, but I'll tell you, this campus is blessed to have him here because he's a, as knowledgeable in pediatric dentistry as I feel many pediatric dentists are. He's an amazing resource um, in terms of oral health. But you can see these caries, and oh good, my pointer is showing. Uh, some of these aren't real obvious. They're, they're what we call white spot lesions. So if you took these and sectioned it and looked it under uh, a scanning electron microscope, this is what a white spot lesion looks like. And this is in the enamel itself within the tooth. Um, all you're really seeing is a white spot there without a, a violation of the actual tooth structure. As that process continues, you reach the center here called the dentino-enamel junction. And that's where things start to break down because the bacteria can travel in both directions from here in an area that's a little more porous and the bacteria have more access to. And then we start getting into the dentin. And so really, by the time we see a cavity, and I'll tie this in with the, with the lecture. Yeah, it's great. It's my first go at this, and it's working really, really well. All right, so we're kind of settling in. It looks like the majority is 6.0, and the actual critical pH for a tooth to begin to dissolve is actually 5.5. <laughs> so it's, it's going back to the dynamic process. The upper example would be an example of a child who ate regular meals without a lot of in-between snacks. And so this is where we can start to help counsel and strategize how to prevent caries. If uh, an individual eats a carbohydrate and the strep mutants start to break down the carbohydrates, the end product is, is an acidic uh, byproduct, and that drives the pH down below 5.5. At this stage, we start to lose minerals within the tooth but the saliva has elements such as calcium and phosphate that buffers that acid and gets us back above the critical pH where we stop losing minerals out of the tooth. Here's a kid that eats three times a day, but how many kids do you know like that? My wife hates the word snack because the kids will eat their meal and it's not 15 minutes later where they're asking for a snack. And we're convinced they hold out and they don't eat the, a lot of their meal because they want the... <coughs> the granola bar or something that's, that's more palatable to them. 
This is probably more of a typical presentation down below where we see there's continuous acid attack throughout the day. Another example of this is a teenager with a Mountain Dew bottle that will open the lid, take a sip, close it. Takes 15 minutes or so for that to neutralize and buffer, and then they'll do it again and again and again and continually bathe their teeth throughout, you know, an hour or more. So it is a dynamic. It's an ebb and flow, and, and this is um, showing that in the demineralization process, once the pH reaches 5.5 and drops below, we start losing uh, calcium and phosphate ions from the tooth structure. So that being said, there is another important aspect, and that's the saliva that helps to buffer the tooth. So what would be your estimation of the pH of normal saliva? We have some, some individuals that are really quick on this. <laughs> so yeah, 7.3 is, is a, a fabulous guess. You would kind of think that saliva might be neutral or a little basic, but in, in fact, usually average saliva is at around 6.3 pH. So now we have to go from 6.3 <laughs> down to 5.5. Now, this varies from individual to individual. Um, and that's something that we're starting to delve into a little more deeply with research and uh, in, in what factors are actually associated with why one individual can buffer acids much more readily and quickly than another individual. And so we've come to learn that, that some individuals have a higher amount of calcium and phosphate ions within their saliva, and then, of course, fluoride plays into the uh, formula quite uh, significantly as well. So the buffering capacity as well as remineralization ability depends on calcium and phosphate ions within the plaque and also within the saliva itself. And the actual salivary flow, the higher the salivary flow, generally the more bicar bicarbonate product that you have, uh, substance, sorry, and that also, the bicarbonate helps to neutralize the acid and bring it above that 5.5 where we're no longer destroying tooth. Um, so the plaque is generally super saturated with mineral ions and above 5.5, that can actually go back into the tooth. So a tooth can repair itself. And this is something that's been on the radar here for, for a good stretch, but not necessarily disseminated well. So we can find lesions like I showed you previously that are white spot lesions. And if we supersaturate the saliva with calcium and phosphate ions, and there are some strategies to do that, we can heal some of these lesions as long as they haven't gotten to the dentinal enamel junction. Once they get there, then it becomes a progressive uh, process. So we get this seesawing effect of minerals leaving the tooth structure into the saliva and the plaque and then going back in, and that's pH dependent. So high content of calcium and phosphate ions, um, if we can get supersaturation with respect to the enamel, then we can start remineralizing. And coolerides and colleagues uh, reported that saliva from different individuals exhibits different remineralization activities. One very easy strategy is sugarless gum, uh, something sweetened um, 
with something other than sugar that bacteria can break down because it increases the salivary flow, it increases the bicarbonate that's, that's excreted, and it helps to uh, neutralize a lot of the acid. Um, so I'm going to go into a, a couple of slides now in terms of the examination. Uh, it seems that at least in this area, uh, you are all very familiar with this sort of methodology for examinations. And I can't tell you how much I appreciate the collaborative efforts in the uh, uh, pediatrics here at Dartmouth Medical Center applying fluoride for these children uh, when they come in for their well check visits. It's huge. It makes a tremendous difference. Um, one of the most impactful studies showed that if it can be applied three times in a seven-day period, that had a statistically significantly higher rate of remineralization than if you apply it once every six months, for instance. So what we're doing in the practice now is we apply and show the parents how to put this on, and then we give them two packets to do it on their own at home. Uh, so if I do it on Monday, I ask them to do the same thing on Wednesday and then also on Friday uh, to try to help remineralize any demineralized areas of the tooth. Um, the pictures people wanted to look at. Uh, this is the old uh, saying, and so I took an old slide without changing it. Uh, baby bottle tooth decay is no longer sort of the uh, preferred uh, description. Now everything is being called early childhood caries because this implied that, that the bottle was the primary source of, of this sort of presentation. And in fact, we know that it, it comes from a lot more than just uh, a bottle. Um, and milk is a quandary. It goes both directions, so we'll talk about that shortly. Here's another example of some of the cases that we see. Um, I thought I was done seeing this when I left Alaska, and I got to tell you, it didn't take me more than a month to figure out that uh, this is alive and well in the Upper Valley. Um, some of that, some of what's responsible for that is that we've removed fluoride from from virtually every source. Uh, there are a few communities in the area that continue to have it. And uh, some anti-fluoride uh, oriented individuals are very adept at presenting um, studies that appear to be uh, well done. Even they look like solid evidence, but um, when you start teasing them down, you start figuring out that some of the studies that are presented may or may not be factual or, or solid evidence. Um, my, my, usually the, my bend on this is if someone has a, a real anti-fluoride stance, I'm not going to win with that individual. But what I generally say is, okay, we're, we're, we're a decade from having removed fluoride in a lot of these areas. So now it's time to turn the tables and say, now let's, Let's see, can you show me that now the autism rates have decreased or the cancer rates have decreased or SAT scores have exploded or <laughs> all these other things that they blamed on fluoride because the reality is we're a great study population right here to show that really the only thing that resulted from removing fluoride is that we've increased the decay rates back to 1940s levels, um, which is it's sad um, given how much effort we expended to get us there. This is one of the cases that presented here um, in the pain-free clinic. And I just wanted to show, this is a kiddo. This is how this tooth actually presented. And you can see that the actual nerve of that tooth is exposed through and through. Um, 
Some of these kids go through an awful lot. And so I would have expected this child to have problems sleeping, eating, and so forth. Um, you would think that the only solution for this is to actually take that tooth out. There's a big six-year molar sitting right behind it that's going to guide itself into the bite or occlusion using this tooth. So if we take that tooth out, that tooth is going to come forward and block out the bicuspid that's sitting underneath it. So by taking that tooth out, we're kicking the problems down the road and not necessarily providing um, a long-term solution. So we can do a root canal where we go in and fill the tooth with medicament, reduce the tooth structure, and place a stainless steel crown on both of these teeth, and now the child can at least re retain their natural dentition uh, to allow the permanent uh, teeth to be guided in. So back to the nutrients or the substrate. Um, here's examples of non-karyogenic, low karyogenicity, and high karyogenic foods. Um, things that often take parents by surprise are crackers, um, animal crackers, uh, Cheez-Its, uh, goldfish being very popular. All of these things can contribute to uh, tooth decay because the bacteria can be very uh, effective at breaking those carbohydrates down into acid. And crackers and things have a tendency to get smashed in between primary teeth because we have a good spacing typically. And then they hang out there and keep our pH levels down for a much longer period of time. So there's the, there's the double factor. There's the critical pH, but then there's also how long does that critical pH remain below 5.5. Those are both important factors. And, and I want to demonstrate some of these examples here. So what's the most destructive? And, and um, <clears throat> Wow, very good. This is impressive. <laughs> really impressive. I expected everybody to go for Mountain Dew. Um, here's how these kind of lay out. Um, the lowest pH is Lipton's lemon tea, and, but there is another factor here, and that's how many grams of sugar, and, and Lipton lemon tea actually wins on both fronts because it's acidic, and then there's also enough grams of sugar to feed the bacteria that that critical pH is going to stay below 5.5 for a good stretch, and the longer it stays there, the more damage we get. So... Um, yeah, I'm impressed. That was, that was, I thought I'd trick everyone and I, I didn't win. Uh, one thing to note here is Bark's root beer has the highest number of grams of sugar of all of these, um, which a lot of folks may not guess. Uh, this was uh, Erickson uh, in 2001 that kind of laid all of this out for us. So I talked about strategies to increase the buffering capacity of saliva and being here in Cabot country, um, maybe we can use some of these to our advantage, but chewing of cheddar cheese after a meal has been shown to rapidly increase pH. So I often encourage parents, if they can get a kid to eat a little segment of cheese stick at the end of a meal, that's going to help. That's going to help. And, and parents are willing to do that, uh, more willing to do that than brush. Pardon me? <laughs> yeah, maybe after the apple pie. Uh, it creates a higher level of calcium and phosphate in the saliva. That's a win. Uh, Silva and colleagues showed that aqueous extract of cheese could, could um, reduce demineralization in tooth. And then Featherstone and colleagues showed that preformed lesion after cheese consumption um, 
started to actually remineralize, and then Jensen and Weffel demonstrated that the addition of processed cheese to a diet leads to increased remineralization of lesions. So again, with this ebb and flow, if we can use this as a strategy and we can sort of push minerals back into the tooth, we're less likely to have it progress until the point where we actually have that carious uh, lesion. So now into a little bit of trauma. Uh, folks wanted to know kind of uh, some basic information here. This is what we call an uncomplicated fracture. This is where someone comes in and actually bangs their tooth and then we see a visual chip. It's into the dentin, so that would be sensitive to hot, cold air, uh, but it doesn't expose the nerve. Um, often there's roughened or sharp edges. Our strategy here is typically to uh, smooth the edges, the sharp edges, and then cover the dentin because that's where the sensitivity is coming from. Uh, an important thing to keep in mind is if a kiddo has taken a face plant uh, in the parking lot, for instance, we want to account for that fragment because sometimes they can get uh, lodged into the soft tissue. So if the fragment wasn't retrieved or the kid wasn't sure that that actually went missing, uh, we take a soft tissue radiograph to make sure that that fragment isn't embedded within the lip. Um, and then, of course, we uh, suture the soft tissue uh, fragments. And then if they do recover the fragments, and it's interesting how many uh, parents come in with a tooth fragment that has fractured off, we'll rebond that fragment right back onto the tooth, and it looks uh, wonderful. So uh, with uncomplicated fractures like that, there's a 1% to 7% necrosis uh, rate. And um, if you place a rough restoration over the top of that, you actually decrease the longevity of that restoration because it's more of a plaque trap and bacterial attractant. And then we want to follow up with these every 3, 6, 9, and 12 months, and then annually through five years. Uh, the Band-Aid resin restoration, that was something where we would just put the uh, resin right over the top and light cure it. It generally is less advisable than it used to be because they leak, and that gives uh, an avenue for new caries to start, and then you're already into the dentin uh, itself. This is a complicated root fracture where now you're looking at the nerve here of the tooth. Um, this can be uh, painful. Um, so our goal here is to actually cover that nerve and then get something back over the tooth as soon as we possibly can. This shows a medicament over the nerve and then a restoration over the top. If not treated, they'll necrose 100% of the time. And the ideal is, is that it should be treated within 24 to 48 hours of that type of injury. Um, if you have minimal inflammation within that pulp stump itself from one to one and a half millimeters, um, we generally have a, a greater than 90% success rate if it's treated. Here's an option where part of that nerve has been exposed for a longer period of time and there's a lot of inflammation in that area that has been exposed. We can go in and remove some of that nerve or pulpal tissue, place a medicament within that area that we have removed, and then place a restoration on. And again, these tend to do pretty well, especially with young teeth. Um, here's a very complicated fracture. In this case, that nerve is definitely not going to survive. This is where we would extirpate or remove that nerve uh, and all the vascular structure and then fill with something we call gutta percha, filling um, that tooth then is essentially non-vital. And then we would restore that with uh, some type of uh, 
post and a, a core to rebuild the tooth and then put a crown over the top of that. Here's an example of a root fracture. Um, this, uh, unfortunately, is somewhat common with teenagers that are into sports. Um, I really, really uh, advocate and would ask your help to advocate for mouth guards uh, as much as possible. And I know you do because I've heard it from my uh, families. Um, in a case like this, we generally will place a functional splint. And what that means is it's not a real rigid splint. Uh, previously, we would place a very heavy wire so it allowed zero movement of the tooth. And we'd reposition that so that we close that margin or the gap with the root itself and then placed a rigid splint for two to four months. What we found is that's a perfect formula for that tooth to get fused to the bone. And now the bone will continue to grow and the ridge will continue to develop except for where that tooth is. So you're, you'll be looking at one central tooth essentially that's in the right position and the other one will be way up high. So because of the ridge defects we create, it's, it's now the approach is to leave a, a flexible splint that allows for physiologic movements, and we usually put that on for two to three weeks. Here's an example where uh, this crown actually completely fractured off, and then down below here we had a root fracture. So in this case, when it's located in what we call the incisal third of the root, um, we have to essentially remove this. The options here would be to extrude this tooth down from this point until we get back to the alveolar bone level and then rebuild that with a post and core and or extract or pursue an implant depending on the age of the patient. Um, here is what we call an avulsive injury where the patient has had the tooth actually uh, completely come out of the mouth. Um, in areas where there's fulcrums uh, like here and up above, uh, we'll get some periodontal ligament injuries and that can be problematic because that's an area where, as I described, the bone will fuse with the root of the tooth, and it's called ankylosis, and, and that generally will, will um, decrease our prognosis. But uh, if the tooth is uh, well hydrated and replaced immediately or as soon as possible, um, we generally have an opportunity to heal that, to, um, to restore those teeth that have come out. We don't re-implant primary teeth, however. And the reason we don't do that is if a primary tooth gets reimplanted and it hits the developing permanent tooth bud, that can damage the permanent tooth, as well as if it gets ankylosed, it can prevent the permanent tooth from erupting and or deflect the path of eruption. So pulp necrosis is certain with mature teeth that are evulsed. A necrotic pulp will become infected in two to three weeks. So usually within two weeks of reimplantation, we do a root canal on those teeth. Um, so if you have an avulsed tooth, it's favorable if we get formation of new periodontal ligament. Uh, most likely with small localized areas of damage, um, we can get uh, a favorable result. It becomes unfavorable where the bone root union occurs, the ankylosis, or uh, we get replacement resorption. And that's where the root actually gets remodeled into bone, um, not something we're hoping for. And then most likely um, with diffuse injury to the periodontal ligament, or prolonged dehydration. Sometimes we have parents present, they have the tooth, it's been in their pocket, it's been two hours, maybe longer, overnight. Um, some might argue that you might try in that case still to reimplant. I generally don't, depending on the age of the patient, because 
again, that ridge defect is far more problematic than attempting to restore that tooth in the short term with a flipper replacement and then having an implant placed when they become uh, a little older. So dry time greater than 60 minutes, generally we, we don't uh, try to reimplant those teeth. This is a phenomenal website for um, dental trauma. It's a great resource. And it's the uh, International Association of Dental Trauma. Um, something I would highly recommend that you just peruse through. There's some great slides and information. What's the best thing to keep it hydrated? The most common thing that most uh, folks will have at home is uh, saline solution for contacts. And then also uh, milk is uh, pretty good in terms of, of storing that and keeping the periodontal ligament viable. Uh, that, and then we hope the parents don't handle the tooth by the root. Usually they don't want to handle it by the crown, so they handle it by, and then you're smashing and sort of disrupting the periodontal ligament. Um, this is a picture I took in the backyard when we were up in Alaska. He just came and had a rest right there in our backyard, and, and I took it right out the window. Um, they are known, just like you saw in Northern Exposure, to wander around the city in Anchorage. Uh, this is right at the hospital that I, I taught at, and uh, he decided he was going to check out what was going on. And these are our residents who have since graduated, <laughs> and so they got quite a show that day. Uh, this gentleman here, his name is Kelly Maxner. He graduated uh, eight years ago, and he has since run the Iditarod four times. He stayed in Anchorage. Uh, and this gentleman went warm and went to Arizona. So you go one extreme or the other, I guess, when you come up. So now, rather than pH, we're talking about grams of sugar. What's going to give you the most? <coughs> You guys are good. I can't fool anybody here this morning. That's absolutely correct. It's orange slice with 50 grams or 12 teaspoon. Can you imagine taking the top off of that can and 12 times? You think about how much sugar that is. It's mind-boggling, but that's how much is in orange, one can of orange slice. Um, Second to that is Pepsi, and then beyond that is uh, Coke Classic, and Dr. Pepper is less than even I thought it was. I figured it would be fairly high. Uh, again, the significance of that is just the more sugar that's present and remains, the longer that sugar can sustain the bacteria, the longer the bacteria break it down, and then we stay below that critical 5.5 pH for a longer period of time, causing the damage. What's the pH of diet Coca-Cola? Because we'll often have parents say, well, how about if we just have them switch to diet? Would that be okay? Because I don't think they'll give up soda. And then I also have parents ask a lot these days about seltzer water. That's becoming a lot more popular, flavored seltzer water. Certainly better than a sugared soft drink, um, but still acidic. As you can see here, the pH is 3.4. So um, at least while the diet soda is within the mouth, 
we're doing damage. Now, you don't have the sugar to sustain that damage where the pH is going to remain below that 5.5 for nearly as long as you would if you had a soda with a lot of grams <laughs> of sugar in it. So given the two, this would be the lesser of the two evils, so to speak, but it's not benign. Uh, and so I try to help parents understand that, um, that, it, that it certainly isn't benign. So the next request was for some interesting cases, and these are a little bit all over the map. Um, and uh, so I'll, I'll go through some of these things that I thought that you might enjoy. This is a, a special needs patient who was developmentally delayed that presented like this, and um, I was a bit puzzled at first, and my mind started to go all over the place. Um, you know, leukemia can present in, in, in this fashion. But you look at the gingiva, and it looks really pink, well-rolled, and well-adapted. Uh, there was the labs that were most recently done with this child were within normal limits. Um, and then as I'm sitting and talking to mom, uh, she was in a knee-to-knee position with us. The kiddo reached right up with a fingernail and picked. So this was a picking injury that had gone on for a long, long period of time, and you can see we're almost at the apex of that root. And once you reach that, um, unfortunately, that tooth won't, won't remain viable. Um, some of that would rebound, but uh, they've tried gloves, taping gloves on and so forth. Um, we're hoping that we can subside the habit enough that hopefully some of this can, can uh, rebound. But the same thing presented both on the right and left, and she did it both with the right and left hand. Um, here's a case that presented uh, early when I arrived in the area, <clears throat> and I was surprised because in the Alaska Native population and the Asian population, we will frequently see this, and it's called supernumerary uh, teeth or mesiodens, um, where you'll end up with um, fragments of the ectodermal tissue as it migrates that breaks away and creates another, an additional or an extra tooth. So... Um, I often will hear parents say, oh, yeah, my, my, uh, my grandpa had two or three sets of teeth. And sometimes really what they're referring to is maybe that individual had extra teeth or supernumerary teeth. You can see there's one here above that permanent tooth. There's one above this permanent tooth. And then there's also this little shadow. So when we went in and, and um, opened the palate and then retrieved a little bone in that area, this is how they presented. Those were the three extra teeth. So remember in the beginning of this where I told you that you could go the rest of your life without brushing your teeth and not get a cavity if you didn't provide the substrates. Not that I'm recommending that because then we're going to be dealing with a whole different set of problems, and I'll give you an example. Um, residents wanted cool slides, so here's one of them. Patient that at eight years of age just decided very obstinately that she was not going to brush her teeth and nobody was going to make her. And she would kick, scratch, bite, whatever she had to, to the point where the family said, okay, all right, we surrender. You don't want to, you don't want to brush your teeth? You don't have to brush your teeth. She also made the choice to not um, bathe generally or, or have hygiene. So this was an extreme case. Obviously, we had multi-services uh, get involved with this, but we brought her to the operating room because she wasn't going to let anyone anywhere near her, and her gums were really incredibly sensitive. So this is a result. Um, she started at age 8 not brushing, and this is at age 14. 
This is the side, and you can see we got lots of spontaneous bleed and so forth from, from her gingiva because of the irritation from the calculus. This is what she looked like after I used an ultrasonic scaler and cleaned everything off. Now, what I want to impress with you here is that these are primary teeth that actually got glued into place by the calculus. You can see that one, that one, that one. These are retained primary teeth, even though the permanent teeth are trying to come in that just couldn't exfoliate because they were basically cemented into place with calculus. Um, we cleaned everything up, and, and this is what I want to impress upon you. Uh, none of these surfaces on the teeth had any cavities at all whatsoever. In fact, not only did we not have cavities, we didn't have demineralization. We had no white spot lesions. Look at these teeth. So, so again, I'm not recommending that we, uh, uh, that we do this. But, but just the thing that, I, that I'm trying to impress is that sometimes when we just say, brush and floss your teeth, we won't get cavities. I think we're doing a disservice without explaining how dynamic this process is and giving greater strategies than just a toothbrush and paste. Because I have parents that are helicopter parents that I know are doing an amazing job and staying on top of the oral hygiene and brushing multiple times a day but they're brushing at the wrong times of the day. And that child has um, aggressive strep mutans bacteria, so they're set up to fail. And, and I feel bad because there's a lot of effort going in, and it's disheartening for them to go through all that and then come in, and geez, they've got two new cavities. So I try to give as much information as I can on how to deal with this as a disease process so that they don't feel so defeated. Um, <laughs> And, you know, strep mutans comes in different forms, just like viruses come in different forms as far as uh, pathogenicity. Uh, we can have some strep mutans that individuals are exposed to that are really aggressive. And often those will show up in a chromogenic form where it looks green, the decay looks green, and they are very, very progressive. Um, I'm coming close to the end here, just some other things I wanted to show you. This was a case where the history didn't match what uh, the child was saying occurred. And uh, they said he fell in the uh, parking lot. And this ended up turning out to be a cigarette burn. And uh, it was an abuse case. So something I want to just uh, advocate that you just keep in mind that a lot of abuse evidence will be intraorally. You might see a torn frenum of the upper lip. You might see bruises and contusions. Um, things like that, but the oral cavity is definitely one area where this will expose itself. This was a, a case where I came in to do an exam, and I looked at the x-ray, and I thought, what in the devil is that? Did somebody come up with a new technique for primary teeth? Is that a new form of an implant? Is that, um, when I actually did the clinical exam, this is what I saw. <laughs> the kiddo uh, turned a screw up into their uh, tooth. So. My favorite slide to show to parents that are having adversity, uh, or sorry, an aversion to metal crowns on teeth showing. Uh, does anybody know who this is? This is Surrey Cruz, Tom Cruise's daughter. And so I, I show this slide as an example. I, I, in a full disclosure, I put a stainless steel crown on my daughter's tooth that fractured and subsequently did end up getting a little cavity. But the reason I like these is they're very thin. It requires very minimal amount of tooth structure reduction. And um, we do have the porcelain 
options here, they all ceramic, but it requires a lot of tooth reduction. So in spite of the fact that we can do this for aesthetics, it's not necessarily the best choice for the tooth of the patient always. Um, if the tooth is already decimated and we're gonna do a root canal, this is a good option, but maybe not for a healthy tooth. Um, I've run out of time here. It looks like it's about 8.45, but I'll, I'll, I'll go just briefly here. Uh, this is called tooth autotransplantation. We had two bicuspids in the lower right quadrant. We had one in the upper left. Pardon me, I went too quick there. One in the upper right, one in the upper, uh, none in the upper left. This is a baby tooth and a canine, and one in the lower left. So we could do this as a, a one bicuspid extraction case. So what we did is we took one of these down here since we had an extra one, and we put it in up here where we had none. This is what it looked like. We splinted that into place, and that tooth actually started to grow a root and remained viable, and this is what it looked like uh, two months down the road. And this is three years down the road, and that tooth actually stayed in place um, and uh, did well. So that, that's something that may not necessarily be on the radar. Uh, something that I just want to ask real quick before we wrap up, what are some topics that you might want to uh, hear if I uh, come back and provide maybe another Grand Rounds or other pediatric lecture? This is just for my own benefit. I just kind of want to hear sort of what things you might feel might be beneficial. <laughs> I did too. Sorry. <laughs> no, that's fine. You can do that. All right. Excellent. That gives me an idea of kind of how what things to sort of focus on. Um, any questions at all? Um, this is another actually picture that I took during the winter, but uh, this was a um, a tent that we had out, and a friend of mine actually took this image, and he's a photographer, so he allowed me to it in my slides. Um, that's my email address. Uh, please don't hesitate to email me any questions that you might have. Um, the Medicaid population, we just had some good discussions here this morning about that. Um, it's a bit of a quandary given the reimbursement rates, but anyone that you see that's decimated, not sleeping, having a hard time eating, we will not refuse those referrals. We will definitely take them and get those kids taken care of. So anything that comes from Dartmouth Medical Center, from Logan Clinic, from general providers, from pediatricians, we get those kids in and get them taken, taken care of. So email me. Thank you. Yes. Um, thanks a lot, Steve, for coming in. I've been... Um, uh, in full disclosure, he's my, he was my children's dentist, and when he first got here, I'm like, okay, we're getting you on the Grand round schedule, and I think it took us whatever, four years to get him here, so I'm so glad you were able to join us. Um, I have two unrelated questions, so you can answer both of them or see if anybody else in the audience has a question. One is obviously our um, contingent in this audience takes care of a lot of special needs kids, whether or not they're kids with behavioral disorders, um, autism, kids with mucositis and cancer, kids who are G-tube only fed, do you have recommendations for us to talk about oral health with them? How do we care for those kids who can't get brushed or don't get brushed regularly because of their, because of their medical concerns? That is, that is a bit of a quandary, and especially in the Upper Valley, the resources weren't plentiful. Um, there is a new service that just opened the Upper Valley called Keen Perspectives. Um, they're using applied behavioral analysts uh, 
techniques. And so if you refer those patients to our office for oral health care, we certainly openly, we accept them with open arms. And I'm working in collaboration with them because I do desensitization within the office where we do contingent rewards and so forth with whatever really drives that particular patient. So for autism, for, um, for instance, um, we, you know, they may be really into video. So we'll have the video playing and we'll say first brush, then, then video. And so as soon as they allow a brush in the mouth, we turn the video on and it may be really short lived. It's taken me up to two years to get to the point where now some of those patients allow us to do a full profi exam, x-rays, the whole business, whereas they wouldn't even get in the chair when we started. It's a lot of time in the office, as you can imagine. So now this new service is actually going to work with us to do desensitization. So they can do it every other week, which is great. You know, we do it every three months, which is slow progress. So I'm really hopeful for that. We haven't started yet, but we're hoping to start here in the near future. Um, Kiddos with cancer and mucositis. Um, it's ironic that you bring that up because I just saw, um, <clears throat> I went up to the pediatric unit here just on Monday. And yeah, mucositis is, that's a rough deal. Um, we worked with the parents and gave them some alternatives in terms of how to, um, some strategies to help that not be so sensitive. A lot of times they'll use the sponge, and the problem with that is then they're not actually removing the plaque from the teeth. So you can get into this vicious circle where now we're leaving bacteria that's annoying the mucositis lesions, and it, it goes full circle. So some strategies we use there are ice chips and then the magic mouthwash. But again, you want to be careful with that because of lidocaine. You don't want the youngest, youngest to get too much of that. Um, that's a really tough quandary. But those are the two things that we generally do with that. Um, and I don't remember, there was maybe something else you well, mentioned. Again, we just have other kids who can't tolerate oral, kids who are completely G-tube fed, kids who yeah. don't tolerate things in their mouth very well. So it sounds like it's a lot of behavioral yes. techniques and working with parents very slowly to be able to. It is, and, and if, I'm, if my estimation is correct, I think this applied behavioral analyst concept that's getting opened in White River Junction, I think they're going to expand really quickly because it's a, it's a very, very needed service here. I'd love to see something like that here at Dartmouth Medical Center where we could get applied behavioral analysts on board that can help us work with that population in terms of oral defensiveness and desensitization. It would be phenomenal. Well, just a few slides ago, the supernumerary teeth case, what sort of symptoms would that so generally there wouldn't be symptoms unless they're growing uh, down towards the palate and sometimes that can put pressure on teeth and cause some types of diffuse sensitivity. It's, it's usually very um, uh, vague. They'll just say, well, there, you know, there's pressure or sometimes they'll feel throbbing. The vast majority have no symptomology with that at all whatsoever. It's just we're worried about them continuing to develop and then e e causing uh, erosion of the permanent teeth in the palate. Yeah. You said um, that parents are brushing teeth at the wrong times. What are the right times? So that's a great question. Thanks for asking that. So sometimes parents will brush teeth, um, you know, first thing in the morning, right before breakfast, right before any substrates are in the mouth. So it would be better to strategize and brush right after breakfast. Brush right after lunch or brush first thing before bed. And the reason I say that is because then we get that sustained fluoride on the teeth 
that helps remineralize the teeth. So sometimes parents will brush first thing in the morning and then they'll brush six o'clock at night and then the kiddo has snacks and then you know so forth and then they go to bed with plaque and substrates on their teeth. So then the disease process is progressive through the evening. So strategizing that and saying brush right after a sweet treat. If they go to a birthday party, kids are kids, they're gonna have a piece of birthday cake. Brush their teeth really quick. At the very least, have them rinse with water and swallow as the very last thing, rather than leaving those things hang on to the teeth for 20, 30 minutes and allow that damage to occur. So strategizing after the, the uh, consumption of substrates. Yeah. Why is it that adults don't get as many cavities? Uh, it depends on the adult. I think um, generally, so adults usually aren't uh, as frequent of snackers. And again, I'm generalizing here, but but kids love to eat a granola bar and then Cheez-Its and then uh, goldfish, and they're just constantly I call it grazing. They're, they they have substrates in their mouth all the time. So if you can remember back at that bumpy slide that I had, they're constantly feeding these bacteria, so the pH continues to stay low. An example for that with adults is a, an adult that puts two teaspoons of sugar in coffee and then sips it from 7 o'clock to 10.30 in the morning. They'll do a fair amount of damage doing that. But um, So the same thing can happen with adults, but there's another big factor, and that's enamel is very thin in a primary tooth versus much thicker in a permanent tooth. What are the pHs of some of the seltzers, the flavored, like, they're down about where Diet Coke is, so it's 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 quite acidic. Um, but again, it, it's if if they're drinking that and they're done with it, and they drink it say in in five ten minutes and they're finished, that's another strategy you can give parents. They they insist on watered down juice. Well, it doesn't take a lot of sugar to create a cavity. So what I tell them is, set your smartphone, your watch, and give them five minutes to drink whatever they're going to drink. Have them rinse with water really quick and then carry on um, rather than having them sip on juice for an hour, which is far more devastating. Yeah. Um, I have a lot of kids that are parents that breastfeed their kids for a long time and then they end up getting caries because of the breastfeeding at night. Um, what recommendations do you have for them? I always tell them, you know, obviously brushing would be best or like wipe out the mouth, but they find it really hard to sort of transition. And do you have strategies for that? That, that is tough because a lot of times um, parents are exhausted. You know, moms are exhausted. They're, they're nursing their child and they just want that child to go right back to sleep. Uh, there's something called spiffy wipes, S-P-I-F-F-Y. It's sweetened with xylitol, and now we know the dosages for xylitol have to be fairly high to prevent caries. So it's not really for that, but it's just something that can actually uh, help neutralize some bacterial activity, but also remove the substrate from the teeth. So what I tell them is, you know, it comes in a, it looks like a, a, a diaper white box, so you have to be careful not to <laughs> confuse the two. The kid will wake up in a hurry. Um, but just go over the top really quick and very gently as the last thing. And then, you know, obviously a, a kiddo needs to thrive, uh, so we have to balance that against, you know, oral health concepts. But the big thing is, if we can get these kids to 36 months without getting exposed to strep mutans, the chances they're going to get a cavity from there beyond in their lives drops precipitously. So 
if, they, if they're not using a spoon to test to make sure that baby food isn't too hot or sharing straws or things of that nature, and you would think at an infant they're not, then the likelihood of them causing decay at that stage is, is much, much lower. Now when they get to 10, 12, 14 months, then we start getting into higher risk factors. Is there any research into how to replace or foster a better flora uh, or flora that doesn't include the mutants? There is, and that's a hotbed of research. And they've tried UV lights, they've tried systemic antibiotics, oral rinses, and the whole to wipe out the oral flora. The issue is we can't get to all the bacteria, especially around the tongue and in all the crevasses around the, between the tooth and the gums. So they just come back. We're successful for about six months, and then they come back to baseline. But if we could figure that out. And they are working in that regard. So they have made some headway, but the original oral flora still wins out. So even though we're inoculating with symbiotic bacteria, they're coming back to baseline. So one of these days we're going to get there. But we've been fighting bugs for over a century and they keep beating us. Well, so. I would yeah. say that was one of the most gentle descriptions of pseudoscience earlier. In <laughs> I try to be polite about it. I... Thanks for your polite talk. Thank you so much.